Tonight's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by ZipRecruiter. No one knows the importance of talent more than ZipRecruiter. They deliver qualified candidates fast, powerful technology that scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience for your job. So effective. Four to five employers have posted on ZipRecruiter to get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Meanwhile, today's business challenges are bigger and more complex than ever before. At Google Cloud, helping accelerate progress is in their DNA. They live for the opportunity to overcome obstacles and create outcomes that matter. It's what they're doing for customers like Target, PayPal, and the New York Times with solutions like industry-changing, AI-driven insights, rock-solid security, and complete digital transformation. Learn how they can help you solve your important challenges. Visit g.co slash cloud slash solving Google Cloud, what are you solving for? We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com and The Ringer Podcast Network, where we have been covering the corona outbreak pretty extensively in a whole bunch of different ways. Hope you're checking all that stuff out. Coming up, we're going to talk to Malcolm Gladwell. First, uh, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, Malcolm Gladwell is calling in from New York City. It is raining here in Los Angeles. We're taping at about 2.30 on Thursday Pacific time. From a sports standpoint, everything has been canceled, it seems like. It seems like we're in full sports shutdown for 30 days. It seems like movies aren't coming out. Uh, TV and streaming stuff seems like it's still going. So life does not seem, everyday life does not seem normal in any way. We're doing the self-quarantine thing. And... Um, even though Gladwell is in New York and I'm in Los Angeles, I can't imagine our experiences are that much different right now. Just, just kind of hang out and and go in hiding, basically, right? Yeah, there's no uh, there. I mean, I've never. I I don't think I've seen New York this. It looks like you know on Thanksgiving Day when you walk around a city and it looks like that right now in New York. It's um, just completely real. It's like unreal. It's like it's like it's Thursday afternoon and it looks like it's a the slowest day of the year. Had you ever written in any of all the things you've written over the years about a possibility of a pandemic or just viruses or any of this stuff? Yeah, I wrote, it actually is one of the most interesting pieces I've ever written um, or ever reported. Uh, it was a piece about the 1918 flu. I wrote it in 1997. And I, but it quickly turned into a piece about you know, this, the, uh, could it ever happen again? And what was, what are the kinds of circumstances that could lead to something as catastrophic as that? And, uh, uh, you know, 20, I wrote it in 1997. So 23 years passed and, and now we're, you know, I, it doesn't look like this is only as bad as 1918, but we are looking at something unprecedented in our lifetime. Um, and it's, you know, people, epidemiologists have been, um, predicting, saying that this kind of thing was inevitable for a very, very long time. And it's, you know, finally, it's finally happened. When did it get on your radar where you started? Because I know how you work. You go deep dive, you obsess over certain things. When did, when did this go on your radar as like, oh my God, what is actually happening here? Well, you know, the, so the, the, the general rule is, um, 
you know, you look to China, all the epidemiologists look to China, right? Because China's where these things start for a variety of reasons, but mostly having to do with the heavy domestication of pigs. Um, Because pigs are the uh, transitional species between ducks and humans. Ducks Mm. are the ones who carry all of the flu viruses and they, it's in their, it's in their feces. They poop it out over in ponds and backyards and as they fly around. But humans don't have a receptor for avian flu. So it has to have a transitional animal. And pigs are usually the transition animal. And there's lots and lots and lots and lots of pigs in China. Um, so that China is usually the place where these things start. It goes, it goes duck to pig to human. Um, and so they always look in China. And usually what comes out of China is a variant of something that we have already seen. And so we can construct a vaccine in time. Um, but coronavirus comes out and it emerges and we have no, there's no kind of um, based on immunity against this kind of thing. We don't have time to make a vaccine in time for flu season. So when I started hearing, I rem- you know, I, I remember from my, from my, I covered HIV and I got to know all of these epidemiologists way back in the day. So I remember all of these rules of epidemiology. So starting in, a, in January, when the coronavirus started, stuff started coming out, I was like, oh, this is a little bit weird because we're unprepared. Usually we're prepared and we're not prepared for this one. Yeah. Um, and so you, you know, and then the question is, does it break out of China? And then if so, what does it look like? Who gets hit by it um, hardest? Um, and we're now finding out. Yeah, it didn't seem, last week you could feel it. I think I've mentioned it in some form in probably the last five pods I've done. And it definitely, you know, like we did a rewatchables on, we taped it on Friday about the movie Contagion and the real life similarities to um, what was going on with here. But it never felt real, real until I would say Tuesday. Um, even like on Sunday, my daughter played a soccer game. My wife and my son went to the Clippers Lakers game and, and it was never a question of like, oh man, stay away. I I think there was a lack of education about, um, just how bad it probably was to be in crowds. And then you read some of the stuff, especially like the conference in Boston, where there was over 50 cases just from one person who was infected. Um, you know, and and to me, you learn all this stuff about. Yeah, actually, the worst thing you can do is be around a lot of people. It's it's weird that it took us to Wednesday to all collectively realize, yeah, let's not do that. That's a bad idea. Well, we didn't, you know, there were all these puzzles. So I was, I'd been emailing through it this entire time with a friend of mine named Mala, who knows a lot about this kind of stuff. And so I would always, I always email my questions to Mala. She lives in London. And I just like a couple of days ago, I said to Mala, I don't understand Iran where are the deaths, right? So Iran was supposed to have this rapidly spiking rate of infections. And I kept waiting, but there, when you saw the numbers on how many people had died, they seemed really small for a country that supposedly had an out of control epidemic. So that made me, that was my little bit of skepticism. I was like, this is as bad as it is supposed to be. Why, why aren't we seeing bodies piling up in Iran? Then today there's a story in the Washington Post about satellite photos showing the Iranians are big, digging mass graves 
Like, so they're totally lying about how many deaths they had. And they're now digging trenches in like open fields. Yeah. So to me, that was like, oh, okay. Now I understand why we weren't seeing the numbers coming out of deaths coming out of Iran. Well, and then um, China is the same thing, right? They reported a certain amount, but who knows what the actual number is? Because it's not yeah, like that's the, it's not that's like the, we have a hundred percent confident that confidence that they're going to tell us whatever the right thing was. Yeah, I think for me, when it became, you know, truly frightening, was starting to read this stuff about what was going on in Italy, where they were basically they ran out of equipment and hospital beds, and now they're picking and choosing between people who are suffering who to help. Yeah. And you start seeing yeah. that stuff and you're like, oh yeah, this, this is at, if this gets here, this is at a whole other level. Cause we're not prepared at all. We haven't done, you know, we're too really weeks. anything. So there was a, there was a, um, thing I read today, which was a, a bunch of experts at UCSF, sort of, uh, University of California, San Francisco, the preeminent medical school in the country. They had a symposium of all of their top virology, epidemiology people. And so they're, this is the most up-to-date sort of expert analysis I've seen. We're two weeks behind Italy. And they're saying, they think it's, it, we're too late to stop it. They think 40 to 70% of Americans will be infected in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, and they're looking at in excess of a million, they think of in excess of a million American deaths. Um, so it's like, I mean, like to get that from normally these guys are at this stage are sort of super cautious about attaching numbers to predictions like that. Um, that sort of shook me a little bit when I realized, you know, those guys are lining up now and saying that we should expect something in that range. Now that is absent. They're saying that absent the emerge, the dramatic emergence of some kind of treatment for those who are um, you know, uh, suffering the worst. So there's always a chance that, you know, one of some treatment out there, we have some kind of Hail Mary treatment that, that we can use on the people who are worst affected. But absent that, it doesn't, it's not, uh, it doesn't look pretty. And they were factoring that in even with, you know, assuming everybody gets their shit together now and we make testing free and drive through and a lot of the stuff that like South Korea is doing, they still think it could be that bad. Well, we don't know. So the, the the problem is that we're really, really late to the party on this. So if we had been doing, if we were really two weeks behind Italy, that means we should have been doing social distancing a month ago. Yeah. And so the, that was the, they, the, the first thing they said in this note from the UCSF doctors is it's too late for containment. So containment is where you think you can kind of you know, shut down a city and stop it from spreading. That's over. Um, and because we haven't done any kind of major testing, we don't know what the prevalence rate is in the population. And the little hints that these guys were looking at would su suggest that it's already everywhere. Um, so like you can slow it. Oh, the only reason we do social distancing is not because we think we can affect the overall number of infections. We're trying to slow the rate of infection right. to limit the stress on the healthcare system. So it's like, you're going to, you know, chances are you're going to get it. They just rather you get it two months from now, as opposed to next week along with everybody else. That's the reason we social distance. And that's the point um, that has been banged home, 
you know, if you're online or you're reading this stuff, people keep banging that point home over and over again. It's, we're not stopping this, but what, what we have to yeah. do is at least elongate it so that we don't overload our hospitals the same way what's happening in Northern Italy right now. And yeah, that's the, that is the great, and they made a, in this UCSF thing, they made this really interesting point about closing schools. It was really funny to see closing public schools to see this problem assessed from, so these are all doctors working in hospitals and they were like, don't close the schools. Why? Because so many people working in healthcare, uh, if their kids are home from school, they won't be able to come to work, right? <laughs> they were like, you know, all of our nurses, they're making whatever they're making. Yeah. They don't have enough money to have babysitting. So like, if I lose my nurse because her two-year-old and her six-year-old are, or no, her six-year-old and her eight-year-old are home from school, that's worse from my perspective, right? That's what they were saying. I thought that was very interesting. I hadn't even Jesus. thought about that as a as a, a counter argument to closing the schools, but they think the core of the problem is going to be in hospitals. Do you see, I mean, I'm an optimistic person. I feel like we, I'd like to think we had the best country and we have a lot of the smartest people. Do you see any world in which all the smart people can really band together and figure this out? And do you see a world in which um, the president who doesn't seem to be that interested in listening to anybody would actually start listening to people? Well, I mean, I think that people will, the problem is that you, the first great opportunity we had to do something was a month ago or even more than that. And we've missed the, we've missed the, the, the easiest solution would have been, was to jump in hard and early, do tons of testing, do social distancing from the beginning, shut down low, you know, focuses of infection, but that ship sailed. So, you know, the number of options on the table now are pretty, um, meager. Uh, so the best, you know, like I said, the best we can hope for, it does seem like the private sector individuals are doing, you know, all of this kind of don't come into work. Don't, you know, the NBA shutting down game. I mean, all these are, um, non-governmental bodies are sort of doing the work of the government for it. Like they're now responding rationally to this. So, you know, where people are stepping in where, um, where the government has uh, uh, has let us down. Um, and so maybe that's the way it goes. Maybe this just becomes a kind of, the management of this epidemic is sort of outsourced to um, to other institutions, to people other than uh, the administration. It seems like everybody is still in a lot of denial. And you can even see it with the way the sports coverage is being disseminated right now, where, you know, they woke up this morning, I just assumed all the games were gonna be canceled. I mean anyone who's read anything over the last 48 hours would be like, yeah, what's, what are you guys doing? Cancel the games. You wake up this morning and they're playing college basketball games. And, yeah, yeah. and they think well, they're going to do I'll, the second round of the, of whatever tournament. And it's like, what are you guys doing? There, there's no way this tournament is going to end. There's no way we're going to have March Madness. What, what, what point are we trying to prove here? Well, so I would, I, let's, let, can we like talk about this? This is interesting. And this, it, this, this takes us slightly away from the insanely depressing facts of the epidemic. But I want to kind of like devil's advocate on this. Yeah. So there was, I was thinking about the NBA. Let's use the NBA. Let's start with the NBA. It is 100% the case that there shouldn't be anyone in the stands. So I think we're all in agreement on that, right? Yeah. That the idea of 
of people congregating, fans congregating, many of them older, in a small space is lunacy. So then the question is, so what, what about the games themselves? Can you play in empty arenas? I actually don't. What if we, we take a timeout? Every single player is tested. We wait long enough to make sure that we don't have any kind of incubating cases. And then, then we play in empty arenas. These guys are all, you know, this, the thing about this virus is that it's super age stratified. 25-year-olds in perfect health are not dying of this disease. That's not who we're worried about, right? We're worried about their grandparents. So like, I don't see why if you did a, if you, everyone on every NBA roster was tested and semi-quarantined for two weeks. And then we said, okay, we're going to finish this season. And, but these guys are going to live under a kind of protective seal. And we're going to test them every single day. That's, I don't see why that doesn't work. Right. Does it, am I wrong? I think the, the counter to that would be what happened yesterday with Rudy Gobert. Where you're, yeah. but that's because he wasn't. I know, but you're about to play a game, and all of a sudden it comes out somebody tested positive, and the panic that happens. They're they're not they don't want to go near that, and then, and then it's a question of what's the upside? What's the upside of playing in empty stadiums? What's the, what's the upside of trying to entertain people when everybody is scared, et cetera, et cetera? I, I I think the upside versus the downside. There was no contest. I I thought the same thing though. I mean. My daughter's team had two huge games this weekend. And, you know, as recently as yesterday and this morning, we're thinking, all right, well, if it's just their team and the other team and it's just parents on the sidelines where it's not a crowd, like how dangerous is that? And then you start thinking about it more and you're like, well, wait a second. Like ultimately who cares? Why, like why, you know, why not be more safe than sorry? You know, what if, what if they're playing somebody and somebody in the team, their dad got it and all of a sudden they may have it now our whole team, like, it's just not worth it. And I think, I think that's been one of the weirdest things about the last two days is as all this stuff gets canceled and it's such a big part of our lives, you know, and it's like, oh, March Madness is coming. I'm used to March Madness. I'm used to the Masters. I'm used to the NBA playoffs and figuring out what the seeds are going to be and the MVP race and all of these beats that you have in the calendar that have just become part of our lives. Like, like anything else, like Thanksgiving, like Christmas, um, to have that removed, I think has, has really disoriented a lot of people, including me, where you go, well, well, wait, why can't we do this? Why? Well, what if, and, and then you just kind of realize, look, it's not happening. We're, we're, this is at least 30 days where nothing's going to happen. We're going back to the basics. And um, I thought yesterday, um, I wasn't going to tweet. And then I, I I did a tweet last night that I don't regret because I stand by it. I thought yesterday was the craziest day in the history of the NBA. Um, it it was completely unbelievable. I always thought the Artest Melee was, was going to be the watershed. I can't believe this is happening as I'm sitting in or my- Or magic testing positive. Or magic. I thought magic. Or- I would or, say magic bias the melee with a one, two, three. And I think Kobe, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I think, oh, Kobe, of course, yeah, yes. I think those were yeah. the kind of the four, oh my God, I remember where I was when I heard the news kind of moments. And yesterday was definitely like that for me. I came home, um, put all the TVs on. I wanted to see what they were going to do with the games. I had the OKC jazz game on one of the TVs and it was, and I was kind of, I was watching the ESPN coverage and I was kind of glancing over and it wasn't starting 
And then all of a sudden there was a mascot shooting half court shots. I'm like, what's going on? And then flip the TV and they're going on and they're like, and then you hear the whole thing and, and it just became clear something massive was happening, you know? And yeah. then Van Pelt is coming on ESPN and Woj is giving his, his updates on the whole thing. And, and, you know, I mean, obviously completely different situation and I don't want to compare the two in any way other than this. It it was the same feeling that I remember feeling on 9-11 where you just feel like it was the first time the virus really, it really hit me that everything was changing now. And at whatever way of life we had before was now different and not just different, but up in the air. And, and I had no idea where I was going to go. And that was what 9-11 yeah. was like. After that second plane, and then when the Pentagon, and there was that five, six hours where it was like, what's happening? Are we going to war? Are we under attack? Um, where, where does this happen next that you're just completely unsettled? And I felt that way last night watching all that stuff where it's like a jazz player has the corona. Um, they're just, and, start, and then it was like, Tom Hanks has the coronavirus? And it just felt like the wheels were coming off. It was an unbelievable three hours and I'm not going to forget it anytime soon. But we're about, you know, we're about to discover in the next two weeks, three weeks, just how many people have. I mean, you know, the you realize the odds are your son has it, right? The He's a kid. Kids are, are uh, usually the reservoirs for all manner of viruses and infections. In this case, we're lucky in that kids seem to be um, asymptomatic carriers of 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 uh, coronavirus. But I don't know if it's going to be anywhere and seems to be no shortage of people in California, who, you know, who have it. And it's probably, you know, he may be walking around with it right now. Like, I don't know, we're about to, we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're, we're gonna undergo this, this massive um, uh, uh, social education over the next um, two weeks in viral spread. Yeah, that's pretty the hardy virus too. Yeah, that, that sticks that, around. That's the part where you hear this stuff and nobody really knows what they're talking about, but they're saying like, "Well, it only kills old people." Well, once the warm weather comes, it's going to die, and it's like nobody knows anything. We've never had a virus like this. It does. It clearly does seem like the older you are, the yeah, it's, it's more super, dangerous, terrible that, that, it is. It would have to mutate. So they always mutate, but remember the logic of, um, and this, there are exceptions to this, but in, you know, in general, the evolutionary logic of, of um, contagious diseases is that weaker strains beat uh, vicious strains. So the vicious strain is the one that, once something keeps you at home on your, you know, in your bed on your back, that, is that, that strain of virus can't propagate. It hits, you know, it does, there's no more social contact. You can't skip, it can maybe skip to a spouse or a, but the virus that lets you walk around and go to work is the one that spreads. So, you know, in general, you would think that over time, these viruses tend to, um, they tend to weaken because the, the weak ones win. Now, there's a, there's a bizarre exception to this in 1918 um, with the worst flu virus of all time, which is that it gets in, uh, this is actually a totally fascinating little historical, the, the flu um, goes crazy on the, on the, in the trenches of the First World War on, on both sides. And 
But the weird thing about the trenches is that if you have a weak strain of the flu, you stay put and everyone around you has the flu, so it doesn't spread anywhere. But if you had a nasty strain of the virus back then, you were taken out of the trenches, put on an ambulance with a bunch of other sick people, moved a hundred miles back to the back lines and taken to a hospital full of really sick people. So for the first time we made really sick people mobile. That's why that particular strain of virus um, is so ex unbelievably lethal because there was this, in a wartime, you reverse the rules of the evolutionary rules and all of a sudden the most vicious strains are mobile, right? So that's like, there can be these exceptions every now and again, and maybe there'll be an exception in this case, but you know, if the normal pattern holds, you would expect this to, to get weaker, not stronger um, over time. And that's the one thing we can tell ourselves that's, um, and if we talk about 40 to 70% of us being infected, it is a reasonable expectation that most of those infections are going to be relatively mild. Um, but this one, the, the, the stratification right now is like crazy. I mean, over 80, we're talking at 20% mortality rates. Under 40, we're looking at 0.1 or 0.2 fatality rates, something closer to what normal flu is. It's like really a huge difference, you know, between those two, uh, um, between those two, that's, that's, that's a, what is that? That's a hundredfold difference between those two um, fatality rates. It's huge. So um, Tom Haverstrow wrote a piece about um, being at the Sloan Conference in Boston on, on Friday night where the Celtics played the Utah Jazz. And when the Sloan Conference, you've been to it, it's all, mm -hmm. it's panels and stuff all day. And then there's a Celtic game that night. A lot of people usually go, including the NBA reporters that are there. And then the next day they have a whole, they have a whole bunch of more panels and stuff and then it ends. So Rudy Gobert played in that game, 9.7 rebounds, 33 minutes. Don't know if he was infected or contagious at that point. And Haverstrow wrote about, you know, at that point, the media was, this is what he wrote. The media was free to visit with players in the locker room, visit they did. And then he writes, at least one Sloan attendee talked directly to Gobert up close on Friday and possibly more after that game. Gobert and his Utah teammates flew to Detroit and the writer returned to his hotel ahead of the next day's slate of Sloan events. On Saturday, the conference went on as planned. Um, several attendees been around the Jazz night for mingling with hundreds of people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you think about that, like we were supposed to send three people to Sloan last week and we decided not to. We, we, uh, we had people going to Sloan in the South by and we just said, it's not worth it and didn't send them. But you see something like that, all those people who were, you know, who went to Sloan or went to that Celtic game are freaking out. And I, I think going back to the original thing about whether they, you know, whether they should have played in empty arenas, all that stuff, like I, to me, it goes back to that. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to be in a situation like that where you're like, oh my God, did I cross paths with that person? And I don't know. I, I'm okay with the shutdown. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the odds are that after 30 days, we see a, res a resumption of some kind of NBA? So I think there's a lot of denial going on right now. Um, and I, I just don't think people have fully wrapped their head around this. And I don't think the leagues have either and the TV networks and all these people. So I, I think they're saying all the right things, saying that they postponed. 
uh, until further. We're going to reevaluate. It's going to be at least two weeks, at least three weeks, at least four weeks. Games could go on down the road. But I don't know. Every single indication is that this is going to get a lot worse. And if this gets worse, but the league, let's take the NBA. They're like, all right, cool. It's been four weeks. All of our players are clean. We're ready to start playing basketball again. But meanwhile, Corona has spread in all of these different clusters in different parts of America and nobody's allowed to fly in and out. And we, it's basically a massive self-quarantine. I can't imagine they would come back. So I, I think this is going to be way longer than, than two to two to three to four weeks, whatever. I think, uh, I, I, this is going to be the last season. I think it's possible. I do. I, I, and it's so crazy. Cause like even Priscilla and I on Sunday night, we lead the podcast talking about that Lakers Clippers game. And you know, now we have a two person MVP race, LeBron and Giannis, all that stuff. That was only four days ago, you know? Yeah. And now it seems, yeah. now it seems pretty conceivable that if they come back, maybe just the playoffs start right away. If for some reason they decide six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 weeks from now, whatever, that they're going to come back. I, what can't be lost is poor decisions are always made when lots of money is involved. And you saw the NCAA until the bitter end, not, not wanting to cancel March Madness because you talk about almost a billion dollars that they were ready to, uh, you know, that they would have had to give up. Same thing for South by South by probably two days after everybody knew they probably should have thought about canceling it. Cause so many people were backing out, they waited and then they finally did it. So I wonder if there's a roadmap when people feel like, Hey, this is calmed down. Hey, we have this under control with the virus. Oh, it, it's, it's been contained. We figured out a whole process. It's time to start playing basketball again. What if it's not contained? You know, what if, yeah. what if we're not yeah. all the way there? Is that worth it? So my, Wait, who can I ask a non medical question? Just because I'm part of me is, is, is anxious to move, to move as far as possible from the incredibly depressing facts of this. Yeah. Do we know who, so who, do we know who takes the financial hit? So how is the contract written? These TV contracts, for example. Yeah. Who, so there are these force majeure, majeure clauses in contracts, which say any kind of act of God allows the contract to be voided, right? And the big, I know just from, friends who are lawyers that the not all contracts have force majeure clauses and not all contracts have some of the, the force majeure clauses are written in such a way that would allow you to include something like a flu pandemic and others are not. And it, you know, the question, so it's not, is it, it like if I am the NBA and I have a ongoing TV contract with, you know, ESPN and whatever, the, what is the status of that money? Is that money, are the networks obliged to keep paying that even if the games are canceled? What, what, how is the contract written there? I don't know for sure. And I'm sure it's going to come out over the next couple of days. My guess would be that it's it's dependent on, you know, are you playing 82 games? Are you delivering games on time? Are you delivering playoff games on time? So if they don't, you know, if they deliver on 75% of the contract and that's it or 70, whatever it is that they would give the other 30% back. Um, I don't, you know, Bill, I, it might, it's a really open question. You know what I'm reminded of? Do you remember, do you know the famous story about, um, 
Larry Silverstein and, and uh, 9-11. So the developer who owns the trade towers, the two towers, this guy named Larry Silverstein, has an insurance, has insurance on the buildings, right? And the insurance says that they'll pay him in the event of some, you know, extraordinary act, such as burning down or blowing up or being hit by a plane. They get hit by a plane and the question that comes up is whether the attack on the towers is one attack or two attacks. If it's two attacks, he gets played twice. If it's one attack, he gets paid once. So like in the balance is billions of dollars, right? Yeah. And it goes to court. It's in court for years and years and years. The reason I say this is they didn't stick that on something on a multi-billion dollar insurance contract involving two of the most iconic buildings in the United States. The contract was vague. In fact, you know, did not stipulate whether both buildings being destroyed in some extraordinary um, act was constituted an, one event or two events for insurance purposes. Like these contracts are not, they're not written to, to, uh, uh, people don't, you know, when you write these contracts, you don't necessarily have the imagination to conceive of every, every, uh, you know, outlandish, um, uh, high, uh, low probability event. Yeah. So Mike, you know, there's a distinct possibility that we don't know where the money is going, right? They didn't anticipate this. It's they true. Don't have a, they, have, they have a clause which is vague and they, these, they, they could be in court for the next 10 years on this. Well, Larry Silverstein, famous uh, Reddit conspiracy guy too. Because it was he always, was. he'd gotten all this insurance and people always tried to say oh, there's some oh, sort he's of he's not. Oh, you see, he's a subject on Reddit. Yeah, yeah. 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 A, I, there's I some sort imagine. of crazy correlation. I guarantee um, you right now, there are four really, really big deal Manhattan law firms where people are in a conference room right now on the phone and will be there for the next 48 hours, the next 40 hours, we'll be there for the next six months, pouring over the contracts, figuring out who, what happens here. Well, either way, the NBA definitely, they lose all the attendance stuff game to game and then the, all the playoff revenue and all that stuff. So between that and what happened in China before the season, um, you know, I mean, this isn't certainly not one of the, more important than some of the other stuff we're talking about, but it's going to dramatically change the yeah. business of the league next year because the salary cap completely hinges on how much money was brought into the league the year before. And if, if you're going to get rid of the playoffs and the last fourth of the season, plus what they lost in the China, the China stuff, it's, it's they're they're going to have to figure out what to do and probably have to come up with some sort of uh some loophole rule or something like that. I, I want to talk. It's not this thing that we're talking about is actually not trivial. It actually goes to the central problem with these things, which is these are just examples. They're all examples of this. The, the contracts that we're talking about, the Larry Silverstein thing, the salary cap implications are all of a piece with the failure to adequately prepare for this virus from a public health standpoint which is we have a great deal of difficulty imagining these, um, these uh, rare events, right? This was, I don't know if you remember, um, a guy named Nassim Taleb wrote a very famous book called The Black Swan, which yeah. is basically an argument about this. The, the argument of The Black Swan was that we underprice rare events. Was he was saying, Wall Street always assumes that the likelihood of something catastrophic happening is so small as to be almost you know, 
you know, not even worth worrying about. And his whole point is, no, the thing about rare events is they eventually happen. And you have to kind of, you know, these catastrophic events are, um, they're not, they will, they will almost certainly happen in your lifetime. If you look at sort of the, and that's the same, we're talking about exactly the same phenomenon that we don't, we haven't kind of priced in the likelihood of these catastrophic events into our models of the world. One very serious version of that is the inability in January to understand that, oh my God, this could get very serious. We need to act now. And another more trivial one is my very, very strong assumption that, or uh, guess, speculation, that the contracts on this are vague. Same problem. They wouldn't be specific on this. No one would conceive of, have conceived of this. Well, and then the other piece is that the ESPN and TNT specifically, they, you know, they lose a ton of ad revenue from all the games that they're not showing. So there's that too. And, um, and there again, I'm sure you have, uh, so I'm going to guess that ESPN had pre-sold advertising yep. through the playoffs. Yeah. And there again, it's going to come down to whether, the, what does that clause in the contract say? Right. Right. So here's, knows? one of the weirdest things to me is, on Monday, I heard from a couple of different people that on Wednesday they were going to announce um, that they were going to play games without fans. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure what happened over those next 48 hours, why they had to slow play it like that. But that was why on Tuesday night on a podcast that I taped with House at one in the afternoon, we did a whole, we led the podcast with what our NBA games going to be like with no fans in the arenas because I was confident that that was what they were announced on Wednesday. I think they were waiting for the board of governors meeting to officially decide we're either mm -hmm. doing this or we're postponing. It's strange to me that they didn't just kind of proactively move on Monday. And I'm not really sure what the reasons were for that. You're talking about a lot, you know, you're talking about 30 rich guys and a lot of money at stake and TV networks and, um, you know, all the things that are going into place. But all of this all of this was in full motion on Monday from, you know, let's just take the NBA side. Um, just, we could talk about any sport, but we'll just use the NBA for the model here. Um, they're talking about on the NBA side, what about no fans in the arenas? What does that look like? Should we do that? From the ESPN TNT side, they're talking about how are we going to broadcast these games? What happens if they shut down travel in different cities? How do we get announcers from city to city? And that would be, I guess, why they slow played it because there were so many moving pieces. I think they wanted to take mm -hmm. the two days to figure it out. But I think they knew they were doing this on Monday. Um, I'm pretty confident. And Oh, really? Yeah, I do. I, I think they knew they were at least going to no fans. And yeah. um, then when the Gobert thing happened, which is just, you know, one of the all-time craziest things that's ever happened in the history of the league, the, the doctor running out before the game... Um, to stop it, that was the worst case scenario, right? That's why you talk for two, three days in a row about what do we do? Should we not have fans at the arenas? Um, now going yeah. going forward, I'm not even ready to, I can't wrap my head around all the basketball implications, but the reason it was the craziest day of all time on top of the Gobert thing and all these other things and Sacramento canceling the game at the last second, basically because the referee had been in the Utah Jazz game earlier. I think that was really the only reason. Um, oh. We've just never seen a season stop like this in basketball. We saw it in baseball. 
and that was the 94, um, when the season just ended after a hundred plus games, we never had a playoffs. We never had, uh, we, you know, we just never had anything. And now it's like this lost season that you just look back at and go, what the hell? I think with the NBA, you know, on top of all the other things, this is so bonkers. This was such a good season. And there were so many good subplots and you had this LA versus LA thing and you had the MVP thing and you had the East was wide open and um, et cetera, et cetera. And we were all so caught up in that. And then it just ends. And now, now it's, you know, whether it comes back or not, I think best case scenario, you could say they shut down for six, seven weeks and maybe figure out a way to keep going. But, you know, if you're right and we're headed toward you know, this, this just getting so much worse because our country is so unprepared for it. Um, it's just hard to imagine people like, Hey, come to, come to an NBA arena tonight. I, I just don't see it. Do you see that? Like, do you see, well, do you see the NBA just starting up as people are dying in various cities? I actually do. Uh, I, for some, I, I, I would say this, I, I did in my, Two books ago in David and Goliath, I did a chapter on the Blitz, the, the bombing of London in 19, uh, by the, by the Nazis, the beginning of the Second World War. And it's an incredibly interesting story for a number of reasons. The principal one is that the English government assumed that the effect of, they didn't, they had completely inadequate air defenses. Um, so they knew they were going to get bombed. They knew exactly what was going to happen. And they assumed what would happen would be panic and that the population of London would empty out. And they made all of these contingencies to deal with the fact that everyone would be running for, for their lives. And um, the nothing happened. So the bombers came in, did enormous damage, all kinds of people died, and there was no panic. And it's super interesting, and it's, it's super interesting on a number of levels, but it, it, what, what it's really about is how quickly we readjust our sense of what normal is. Yeah. Um, that we, you know, human beings will get back to um, baseline really quickly. And it, it, with, with viral epidemics, what happens particularly uh, as well as a biological component, which is once enough people get, inf- have, you know, get infected, you get herd immunity, right? So if we get to seven, I think in this thing I was reading this morning from US, UCSF, they were saying, if you got to 70% of Americans um, having been at one point infected, then you have herd immunity and you, that's the end of this particular strain of coronavirus. And so you, you know, there is a natural end point. Now you might, you're going to lose hundreds of thousands of lives along the way. It's going to be really, really brutal, but it, it doesn't, you know, there's a point at where it goes away. Um, and people, the history of humans is that we adjust insanely quickly to these kind of cataclysms. You know, I, similarly, I had this fascinating conversation for one of my podcasts last week with a guy who was in the, uh, in the fashion industry, he was gay. And he was talking about New York in the eighties in the gay community in his world where every, you know, basically everyone, some huge percentage of everyone he knew of, of his friendship circle died in the space of four or five years. And he said, you know, the incredible thing looking back was in the midst of that unbelievable tragedy was one of the greatest bursts of creativity 
um, that he can Im imagine. Like he said, never, in all of these fields in fashion and art, and there was this unbelievable flowering of of greatness amidst this unbelievable tragedy. And it's the same kind of point: is that people will surprise you with their reactions to these kinds of catastrophic events. And so I do, you know, would I be surprised if we found a way to cobble back together all kinds of things, not just MBA, but no, I think we'll figure out a way to put them back together. And I think we should. I mean, I think it's really important that I actually, I am, I think there is a very strong moral case to be made for someone like if I was in Adam Silver's shoes, it is really important for him to try and bring his world back to normalcy um, uh, as soon as is prudently possible. You have to do that. Like that's how human societies res respond, are supposed to respond to these kinds of challenges, right? That's his job. And I, I you know, I, God wish him all the luck in the world, but well, I really hope that 45 days from now, we're looking at something, some form of this back on the screen. Well, it's funny, we we're talking about what he should do. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's two things that are particularly unique about um, everything that's happened here. One is just we've never in our lifetime seen the potential of a virus like this. You know, we've seen it in other, in certain forms and there's, you know, really nothing since what you talked about in 1918, where it's just, completely yeah. wiping out an incredible number of people. And then the other piece is, you know, we've never been in a situation like this before where we have a president that um, just is looking, almost seems like he's looking at this like, well, how is this going to affect my legacy over, I'm in charge of all of these people. I have to make them feel better about this and I have to come up with a plan to fix it. And he doesn't seem yeah. interested in doing it. And I listen, I don't want to turn this into... I, I'm really careful about not getting too political on this podcast. I know people get plenty of places to listen to that from whoever, but if you're just talking about being, you know, just pure leadership, um, this is one of those scenarios where we kind of need a leader, you know, you need well, somebody. We have, you know, what's amazing with this guy who, the guy who runs the, um, the, uh, the Institute of Infectious Diseases at NIH is a guy named Tony Fauci who all of us who covered HIV back in the nineties, remember Tony Fauci, he was, that's when he first took that job. And he was, he was the guy who shepherded the United States through the last version of a catastrophic viral event, the AIDS, the AIDS epidemic of, yeah. of the AIDS and nineties. He, so he's one of the most respected people in his field in the world. He has enormous experience in handling these social cataclysms. In any other universe, the minute we, first of all, and he was, you know, shouting from the rooftops about coronavirus from way back when. In any other universe, when you, when you start up, start to build a strategy to combat this, he's the guy you call. You don't put Mike Pence in charge. Right. You go to the guy who's has a proven track record and deep knowledge of this, and you say it's your show, right? Tell us what to do. Instead, we had this crazy situation where as recently as, as earlier this week, you had press conferences where Fauci has to step in after Pence and other administration officials have said stuff and essentially contradict them, yeah. correct them. 
I mean, it's like bananas. It's like, you know, there is, it's not like we lack for expertise in this. You've got a guy working for your government who knows, you know, what to do and handle this. And you're, you're like, you're at one point earlier, a couple weeks ago, he was forbidden from, he was from talking to the press. Right. Right. They, 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 I mean, the idea that you wouldn't let Tony Fauci be the, it's just insane. Well, it seems like, you know, if it was a normal rational person who had the job of, of president of the United States, you would think the immediate move would be like, I'm, I'm going to create a task force. I have all these unbelievably smart minds in this country. I'm going to, I'll get eight of them and I'm going to put them in charge of this and they can tell me what to do. And as soon as they give their recommendations, I'm going to do the recommendations and spend whatever it takes because it would really, really, really be awful if this virus spread in our country. And that unfortunately did not happen. But I mean, I mean, that's like basic problem solving 101, right? This is yeah, no yeah. different than if if some great athlete, you know, blows out their knee and they want to get like a dream team of four knee sur- the four best knee surgeons to get advice on what to do. You just go to the best and they tell you what to do. I don't yeah. understand why that didn't happen here. Um, and it was ridiculous as it was happening. And, you know, I think unfortunately with the way the last few years have gone and how social media has turned into, you know, people defaulting to hysteria at all times. This was a case where there, you know, there was real reasons for people freaking out and it just seemed to blend in with everything else for a couple of weeks until really Sunday and Monday. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's nobody's fault other than who was in charge. But man, it's, it's just weird to me. I mean, honestly, how many like, how many highest of the high level smart people do we have in this country right now who could have talked about this in detail and explained Once. it and explained what to do? Like, like 25, 50? What's the number? Oh, I mean, more than that. I mean, you could, you could go to any major teaching hospital in this country and assemble a group of 10 people. That's what the, the thing I use at UCSF that I was talking about today, that's essentially what they did. They just went to their staff and took their top, top infectious disease guy and their top infection, their top epidemiologists and their top whatever. And they just, and then you could do, you can find similar incredibly qualified people at any teaching hospital, any research hospital anywhere in the United States. So you're talking about hundreds of people who, you know, are, who were very clear eyed. I mean, there's a playbook, a well-known playbook for, uh, for, for dealing with these kinds of, you know, there's a, there's something called the, I once went to it. There's a thing called the flu meeting. Um, I think it's in the spring uh, where basically all of the top experts in the world get together. Usually it's in, it's at FDA in Maryland. Everyone gets together in a room and they review all the data on what are all the weird things that are out there. What do we know from our, they have remote testing sites throughout the world, right? They'll have, they have clinics set up across China and across parts of Africa. And they come back and they say, this is what we're seeing and they'll give you the exact breakdown of the viruses that are sprouting up. And they discuss what can, what kind of, what is the one that we think was going to win? So what's, that's the one that we should build a vaccine for. There's a whole mechanism in place. And when they see something that's really out of the box, that they don't have uh, a vaccine strategy for, they sound the alarm, right? This, my point is like, 
you would think in looking at the administration's response that we're dealing with something for which we have no kind of um, institutional uh, mechanism for dealing with. No, no, no. We've set up these institutions years and years ago. They they function. You just have to pay attention to them and empower the people who are who are in charge. It would be, you know, I would. It, maybe we should require every future presidential candidate to attend the flu meeting. They should go to at least one so they understand, oh, you know, like it's a very big deal. Like you see some weird thing coming out of Wuhan, you know, and you you should be you should be aware that there are consequences if you ignore that kind of intelligence. Well, you look at, somebody sent me a list of all the things Taiwan did just since mid-January, where basically from January 20th on, they were moving. They had widespread testing by January 24th. They were making, you know, way more masks, 10 million masks a day by February 2nd. Um, they had, they had uh, subsidies going by mid-February. They had travelers being tested left and right by mid-February and et cetera, et cetera. And this was all in the span of four weeks. But they, we're talking January 20th. That's, that's nine weeks ago. You know, yeah. and where, where we are here, it feels like we're just getting going now where it's like, hey, here, here's the stuff that's bad for you. It's also, you know, we always talked about what would this event be like in, in the Twitter era? What would that event be like? And, and, you know, in real time, especially now people have way more time to, to, uh, to kill because either they, they're working from home or their, their school got let out early, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's just way more discourse online about this. And I actually think I went from thinking it was, it was causing more panic and stuff and hysteria and kind of bringing, playing all the buttons that are the worst things about social media. But I think in the last three, four days, I actually think it's been pretty helpful and it's been really educational. And it's, if you're, if you're going to talk about what is the best version of what we can get out of Twitter. Um, yeah. a lot of the news stories, um, I thought the Atlantic and the New York times and the New Yorker wrote some really good pieces. A couple of them lifted their paywalls so more people could read them. And, uh, and I just, I felt the most informed. Whereas like, if this was happening 20 years ago, I don't really know what the process would have been. I guess we just would have waited to read the newspapers and we would have watched the nightly news. What else would we have done? Yeah. 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 So, so I feel more, feel more educated. Um, so the, the social part of this, which I know you love, you, you, you love to, to study behavior and stuff like that. All of these people now self-quarantining and we're just going to have families receding into their houses basically, um, for the most part, what are the next 30 days look like? I mean, we've never seen anything like this. What, what do you, any predictions? What do you think, how is this going to play out? Well, I have, I mean, there's, there's, a, there, there's a couple of things that I have been, uh, uh, that are sort of top of mind. One is some people can't do that. And that's my, that would be my first concern. So, you know, the mo if you think about who are the most vulnerable people, they are people who can't afford to, self-quarantine. Yeah, right? true. So, or like, re how about retail workers and people that work in stores or people in restaurants? People restaurants haven't shut down yet. Yeah, Postmates be, drivers. Yeah. 
The second thing would be, uh, the most vulnerable would be the homeless. Yeah. Who, and I think, you know, my guess is at the end of the day, what we're going to see is, and what is really going to be morally shocking is we're going to see um, nursing home populations and homeless populations like absolutely devastated by this because they, you know, those are, in one case, people are physically incredibly vulnerable with a lot of other physically vulnerable place or people um, in a place that, you know, many of those nursing homes do not have the resources to protect against something as highly infectious as this. And then in the case of the homeless, where are they going to go? They're, you know, they got nowhere to go to. That's the whole problem, right? And they are, and they themselves are physically compromised and in many ways. So it's like, that's what, that would be my first thing that we're going to see these catastrophic impacts on really vulnerable, those three vulnerable populations. Yeah. But then the, the secondary question is what are we going to do with ourselves? It's like, what what's the ringer going to write about without any without any basketball? You've got like nineteen basketball writers. <laughs> I know it, it's it's. Uh, I think there's going to be more book reading. I think it's going to feel kind of old school. I remember you were in Canada when this happened, learning about sports while reading Sports Illustrated. Yeah, I don't even think you had TV. But in 1981, when they when they had the baseball strike. And there just was not a lot going on in 1981. I don't, we yeah. barely had video games yet at that point. We had, I don't know, 10, 10 cable channels and books and newspapers. And that was about it. And then you played outside with your friends and you went to, you went to the dump to look for baseball cards or whatever, whatever floated your boat in 1981. And baseball was such a huge part of the day to day, just even like reading the box scores and, you know, watching your team, et cetera, et cetera. And then, then when that was gone and it, it just was like a chasm, it was like, oh my God, what do we do? At, at least we had like movies to go to. That's another thing we didn't talk about. Are, are people going to go to movies? Are people going to go to yeah, restaurants? Yeah, yeah. Like somebody asked me to go to dinner tonight. Do I go? Should I go to dinner? Why do I, I haven't seen the Ben Affleck movie. Should I, should I go and sit in the movie theater? Is that different? Is that less risky than if I got in an Uber? There's all these, all these questions yeah. now we're just asking. I went to, I went to the Rite Aid with my daughter to get uh, a couple things this morning and it was, it was eerie. It was like being in a science fiction movie and everybody's afraid to touch and paying, you know, paying uh, my credit card with being afraid to touch anything. And it was just, I guess that's just what life's going to be like. Yeah. Yeah. Netflix is, you know, I guess Netflix is the winner the other day for all this, right? That's what we're going to, people are going to be doing is sitting on the streaming service. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. ask Kyle, is your mic on? Yeah. Kyle, what are you going to do? Because you're, you're a guy who likes to partake in a cocktail from time to time. It's frequented a couple bars in yeah. your day. Yeah. But uh, now I'll, it's I'll like, I'll do my drinking from home and maybe I'll revisit Mad Men or something. You know, I'm cool. I got Xbox. Yeah, I think that's where that's probably where I'm going with the pot. It's it's you probably just start going backwards. Maybe I'll have to rewatch a show or something. Got it. Got to do something. Can't. There's gonna be nothing to talk about, other than <laughs> other than hoping this doesn't get a lot worse. I don't really know. Um, you there's a lot of shtick for you and Rosilla. Like you're gonna have you can tell more Boston stories. That's all. Yeah, that's all you got left is like doing your imitations of Sully. 
I'll tell you this. We're not worried. We, if the, the one thing I'm not worried about is whether Russell and I can fill 90 minutes on our podcast. We have a lot of plans. <laughs> They're, we're going to, uh, we might rank the all-time greatest generals and just do all kinds of really crazy stuff. I, we're definitely going to do more reading. Do you have any book recommendations for the, uh, for the listeners? I just went out and bought uh, on Amazon all of um, Errol McDonald's, or I'm saying Errol Morris's books. Oh. Because um, I was watching, I went back and watched Fog of War, and it's so good. And I'm realizing I somehow like in my kind of understanding of who are the, to, to my mind, there are three great nonfiction storytellers of my generation. Um, Janet Malcolm, Michael Lewis. And I realized it, the third is Zero Morris. Mm. Guys, you know, like those documentaries, have you watched them, Blue Line? Yeah, I've watched all of them. Um, they're, they're just, they're so good. It's like, it's a, and his books turn out to be incredibly interesting as well. The man is just, his mind is so extraordinary. I, I can't believe I never read any of his books. And I actually was reading one of them, I started reading one of them last night and I was like, I'm completely hooked. They all came in the mail today, so I'm very happy. I'm gonna read a lot of, of Errol Morris. That's my, um, that's my goal over the next, uh, uh, over by self-quarantine. Yeah, my this podcast is gonna get super weird and believe me, I'm not afraid of it. I, I'm ready to do a 20 greatest basketball books of all time podcast. Like, hey, we, we're just gonna get, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. And and to be honest, like I, I'm one of those people that I have to work. I don't know what I'm gonna do with myself. So um we'll we'll have to come up with we I know we're gonna do more rewatchables and stuff like that, but um you Wait, know I think it just it just occurred to me, are we gonna have the Olympics? Oh, would they I I felt like the Olympics, if you told me four weeks ago what are we not having, that would have been my number one draft pick. I just assumed that wasn't going to happen. And now it's like, there's no way. I feel like there's no way that'll happen. I, I would say 0% chance. I, I think the move would be just to move it one year to 2021, right? Just postpone it a year. But wait, I mean, because my assumption was that this is, this thing starts to burn itself out in, I don't, I have no, I'm, I'm, you know, what I'm about to say, I have no basis for, but I've all along assumed that come summer, this is going to, well, this will, this will go away the way that the flu is. It's just a seasonal, this is a seasonal viral contagion. Um, yeah. And that by August, it'll be fine again. But now that I'm thinking about it, the problem is that there's so much preparatory stuff that will be leading up to the games that will be compromised. It maybe just becomes logistically impossible to pull it off. Well, I have something for, I have a streaming thing for you. For, for you to, uh, to power through. You'll put, you'll probably have some spare time. Although who knows with you, you're probably writing some book that you haven't told anybody about. I never know what's going on with you. I actually am. Yeah. All right. But, um, yeah. <laughs> you're just going to go in the bunker and just, just write another book. No, it's, it's, it's all, I'm all about audiobooks now. I don't do, uh, I'm doing, I'm, I'm going to turn a bunch of episodes of my podcast into an, uh, uh, I'm going to double the length and turn it into an audiobook. Oh, Okay. That it's sounds a really, fun. Really cool idea. Yeah, well, that's right. and I've done all the reporting already, so I'm, I can sit at home and do that. Well, I know that. Um, I know you love the show, so I'm going to put this on your radar. The CBS All Access app. I don't know if you are aware of that. 
They uh-huh. they have all the CBS content, but CBS like weirdly owns a lot of shows from the old days, including 90210 and Melrose Place. All the Melrose Places are on the CBS All Access app. And you really think they're watchable in 2020? Let me tell you something. The answer is yes, because um, I started watching from when Heather Locklear showed up and now I just finished season two. Kimberly just pulled her wig off and had the giant alien scar underneath it. It's It's been great to relive. It's one of those shows you can kind of half watch as you're doing something else or you watch as you're about to fall asleep. Um, it's, it's Did you a, know, do you know about my history with Melrose Place? Yeah, it would tell, tell the audience. I do know about it, but tell them again. Because back in the very beginning of the internet, right, like I don't forgot what season of Melrose Place it was, I began to write this emailed, uh, I forgot what day. It was a Monday. Was on. Was it yeah, it was a Monday. It was a Monday? Yeah. So on Wednesday, I would put out a, an emailed synopsis, tongue-in-cheek synopsis of that week's episode. And it started getting passed around. And I, I think, my understanding was it, it, they began to make their way to the writers of Melrose Place. Really? And it was... <laughs> It was like, but they were like, I would email it to like 20 people who would then in turn email it to, you know what I mean? It was this, and it, like, there wasn't a lot of that kind of stuff online back then. So there was this, it was this, and I, when Melrose Place finally ended, I wrote a, uh, an obit for the New Yorker on talking about what I thought was the greatest, um, uh, Melrose Place moment of all time, which what? is, um, but I'm trying to remember it's this thing where Kimberly is being treated is a, remember she's like a, she, she has a, she's being treated by Scott something. Is that the doctor? Michael who's Mancini. Also, who's simultaneously, there's a situation where Kimberly Burns, is her name Kimberly Burns, who was the psycho, was um, in a relationship, simultaneously the, in a relationship with Scott, Bur- Scott Burns or whatever the doctor's name was, uh, uh, his patient uh, and also his roommate. <laughs> okay. So it's like, it was like, it, it was an absurd, and you know, it was like they had departed so far from kind of real life. And they, they, the way that doctors, I was always fascinated by the way that the doctors on Melrose Place behaved because there was literally zero correlation between what a doctor looked like on Melrose Place and what a doctor did in real life. And also the other hilarious thing was there was something hilarious. You could be a doctor on Melrose Place and what your job was would change from week to week. One week you would do surgery and the next week you were a psychiatrist treating someone. <laughs> or you're like, in the ER. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're in the ER. It was like the whole thing is bananas. And for some reason, like, we were totally fine with that. Like, in retrospect, how do you, if someone pulled that today on a primetime television show, the internet would go insane. It would, it would crucify the show, right? Like, post-ER, the standards for sort of the way professions are represented in media went way up. Like you had to have a level of like, you know, of specificity and authenticity and you couldn't, and if you violated those, you could only do those in sort of subtle ways. Melrose Place was like, it wasn't clear that anyone who wrote for Melrose Place had the slightest clue about what a doctor did. Or people people who worked in advertising or anything. Yeah, they, (laughs) it's, 
and it, it's a it's a very now politically incorrect show, which is which is also kind of mesmerizing to watch. Like they have a whole drunk driving subplot with Michael, where they have to change oh, yeah, the I blood alcohol that. results. They have like an eight episode arc that finds that that where Allison finds out that her dad was uh, molesting her as a kid that pays off in the season finale. It's like there was no way anyone would do any of this stuff now. Uh, and, and people are just jumping from relationship to relationship and, uh, and nobody has cell phones or the internet, but yeah, no, it's fantastic. It was Peter Burns and Kimberly Shaw. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was later on. Yeah. Um, they were in, they were, they were, he was her doctor, her boyfriend and her landlord simultaneously. It was like the most, most extraordinary act of, of, um, of, of conflict of interest in the kind of history of television. It was just fantastic. <laughs> well, the first but. two, the first two seasons are really kind of them trying to capitalize on Gen X and the whole concept, which also the movie singles did where just everybody's living in one apartment complex and you could be making all different kinds of money. It doesn't matter. You know, Amanda's a high powered executive. She's for some reason living above Jake who doesn't have yeah, a job. She's still doing Yeah, she's still doing <laughs> It just doesn't seem to matter. People have roommates that would never have a roommate, but yeah, there are different rules back then. So, um, yeah, sorry. All right, we're going to wrap up. I had to end on at least one silly note because this was probably the most somber podcast we've ever uh, ever recorded. Good luck with uh, good luck with your book. Good luck staying safe out there, and uh, and yes. for everybody well, for everybody out there, um, good luck, Godspeed, stay safe. Don't don't do anything. Uh, don't do anything radical. Um, and, uh, and I would, I would say read up as much as you possibly can and listen to the experts. The experts are out there and they're telling us what to do. So, um, Gladwell pleasure as always. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. All right. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Thanks to our engineer producer, Kyle Creighton. Thanks to Norton Secure VPN. Norton 360 with LifeLock is an all-in-one membership for your cyber safety. If there's an identity theft problem, they have specialists who will work to fix it. No one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but Norton 360 with LifeLock is a powerful ally for your cyber safety. Sign up today, save 25% or more off your first year. Go to norton.com slash Simmons for 25% off. We'll be back on Sunday night with Rosillo. We are going to do our best to uh, to try to... I don't know, put stuff in perspective, but also lighten the mood and have dumb arguments about stuff because uh, I think distractions are good right now. Stay safe out there. Good luck and, uh, and hopefully get through the weekend. See you on Sunday.